Thank you, Todd. Uh, kids, you are dismissed to Gospel Project. Thank you for all the wonderful and many volunteers that serve in that capacity to love on our kids, uh, to teach them the truths of Christ and of the Scriptures. So if you have your Bible, which you should, um, turn to, go ahead and start turning to Colossians for me. Um, that's where we'll be this week and for the next three weeks. So, hey, all right, yeah. Unless <laughs> someone's excited as me, that's good. Um, thank you, Todd, for your thoughtful uh, response to what's happened over the last few weeks. Um, I hope that as you have watched the news coverage, that it's compelled you to compassion and pray. Um, I'm thankful for a church that considers that, and first and foremost, will respond with compassion and mourning. Uh, people creating the image of God lost their lives senselessly. And uh, thank you for that and directing our time together. Um, Kate and I apologize. I will not be able to shape a frying pan into a taco. So, um, but I'll probably speak longer than what he just said. <laughs> really? A taco? All right, whatever. Um, oh, another thing I need to make you aware of is I do not want to see anyone playing Pokemon while we're up here. <laughs> Apparently there's a gym here in the parking lot. I know way too much about that. If you do not know what I just said, you're, you're the better for it, okay? You are the better for it. Um, I have eagerly anticipated and, and longed for this time together with you, and I'm grateful that the church has allowed me to be, and, and, and one, to be a pastoral resident, if you're unaware of that. I am a pastoral resident here, been serving since January. We will be on staff serving in that capacity until December. So you can't get rid of me just yet. Uh, we're here for a while, but my family has been deeply encouraged by you, so thank you for that, and you have served us in man, a significant way uh, and loved on us, so we're grateful for that, uh, and thank you for giving me the privilege to share with you over the next couple of weeks uh, out of a book that has challenged me and encouraged me uh, in a lot of ways, but I have a confession to make before I go any further, and, and I kind of hesitate to even admit this simply because of the fear of judgment that you're going to inevitably cast down upon me once you hear the news. So here it goes. I like birds. My wife and I are birders. It even sounds a bit weird to say, uh, but before you shove me into the corner with all the other weirdos, let me make it clear that I'm only practicing what Jesus commanded us to do in Matthew 6, 26. Here's what he says. In that passage, he says, look at the birds. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So perhaps, based upon that, maybe my wife and I are more spiritual than you think. I've also heard that the great evangelical scholar John Stott was a birder as well, if that does anything for you. <laughs> maybe not. So between Jesus and Stott, I feel like I'm in good company. So cast your judgment all you will. But just understand. But seriously, though, we make it a regular habit, whether we're hiking, camping, or simply down at Tempe Town Lake looking around. We try to identify the birds around us. So it sounds funny, but the most interesting part, and coincidental, my favorite part, uh, is identifying them. Now, this takes a, a lot of practice, and there's actually field guides, so you're not left to yourself. You can actually thumb through those and look at that. But there are many factors that can quickly narrow down the possibilities, such as flight pattern, habitat, size, behavior. Then there are further defining features that once you get a better look at it, they can begin to get you closer 
to what it is to make a definite call, uh, such as color. But not only color of the bird itself, mind you, but the different parts of the bird. Its crown, its beak, head, throat, legs, and so on. And now you're thoroughly bored out of your mind right now. But it's in these defining features that really identify what birds you're looking at. With just a small dash of yellow on its head, it screams that it's something different than what you originally thought. Identification is kind of a hard endeavor, but it's the one very distinguishable trait, characteristic, or feature that keeps you on track. Perhaps this is why I like birding so much, because it's not too different than theology. You see, theology is nothing more than identifying the truths of God that keep us on track. Looking for those very distinguishable traits, characteristics, features from the scriptures that drive our worship and our lives. So when there's a deviation, it's evident, it's clear. Well, this is where we meet the church at Colossae engaged in a deviation from the truth, namely about Christ. The occasion of this great letter, as we will see in the upcoming weeks, is to establish Christ as our great authority and as the one through whom salvation is truly accomplished. The great Calvin said about the book of Colossians that this epistle, to express it in one word, though he uses several, distinguishes the true Christ from the fictitious one. Well, what about this town? What's going on? Well, here's a little backdrop for you. The town of Colossa, it was situated in the real lush valley in what we know today as modern-day Turkey. Uh, it experienced some popularity and prosperity in the 5th century B.C., a long time ago. But this really did dwindle over many, many, many years, and the area was prone to earthquakes. A dramatic earthquake actually hit this area around 60, 61 AD. If that is exciting to you, now you know. Uh, and Colossae did not recover very well after that. The other cities in the region recovered very nicely and gained strength, but for some reason, Colossae never seemed to gain uh, its prosperity uh, and popularity back. So by the time Paul writes, many believe uh, that Colossae was probably the least important church to which any letter of Paul was written. Yay. And, and that kind of was a bit staggering to me. But you know what I draw from that? But yet Paul writes to them. I mean, think about this. The least important church to any letter that Paul's name is on. But yet he writes to them. And not only does he write, but guess what? He pens one of the greatest articulations of Christ within the whole entire New Testament. You see, a gathered group of believers were there nonetheless. Who cares about its popularity or its strength? But a gathered group of believers were meeting, and Paul writes to them. He does not withhold time and effort or sound truth because they were a city on the wane. He cared very deeply for them, even though he had not met them. You see, Paul's vigorous ministry recorded in Acts chapter 19. You can check it out later this afternoon. In Ephesus, it truly affected all of Asia Minor. Luke says in Acts chapter 19, verse 10 or so, he says this, 
All residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But we know that Ephesus is where he went. So the word of the Lord specifically came to this church, this gathered group of believers in Colossae through a guy named Epaphras. We see him in chapter one, we see him in four, we'll look at that later. But apparently, Epaphras had heard the gospel from Paul, this is really interesting, heard the gospel from Paul, and then he brought it to his city because we learned that he's one of them. So he comes back to his town and says, you need to hear this gospel. And he faithfully declared the gospel and in turn, he was responsible for planting that church there. Not only in Colossae, but two nearby cities as well. And now we intersect this letter. He has traveled to Paul to gain some advice about how to deal with some of these heresies that they're dealing with, which we'll look at more next week. But that's kind of the, the context. Now, the church was more than likely full of Gentile converts, but there's good occasion to believe that Colossae was a, a big city, well, not really big as it was, but a cosmopolitan city with different culture, religious elements mingled in, including Jews. So that's kind of our backdrop. That's the area that we're talking about. Though this is their situation, it seems that the church was thriving at some level. So let's read a big chunk here because I want you to kind of hear Paul's introduction, what he says about them that he's learned from Epaphras. All right? So we're going to read a large chunk. We're going to start in verse 3 and go down to 14. Now, mind you, this gives us a sense of who they are. All right? So starting in verse 3, follow along with me. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Though we learn about their situation, this text is full of love and affection for them. The gospel had taken root. We're confident of that in their lives, and Paul rejoices at their faith in Christ, and interestingly enough, their love for the saints. He also prayed for them to be filled with knowledge of God's will, so that the natural result would be to walk in a manner worthy 
of the Lord, which, of course, is fully pleasing to God. And Paul desires for them to bear much fruit. He also asks that God would grant them the power to continue in obedience. What a a thorough and thoughtful prayer this apostle has for a group of people he had never met. If you struggle with what to pray for others, might I suggest this as a wonderful guide? Just a thought for you. If you do not spend time praying for brothers and sisters in the church here, might this be a guide for you this week? Might you work through this and take the elements of Paul's prayer and say, God, Christ, would you make these true here? A very thoughtful prayer. But I don't want us to miss something really specific here in this text. I want us to pay uh, uh, some special attention to verses 12 and 14. This perhaps could be a summary or even a thesis statement, if you will, of the entire book. Let me read it again to you. So starting in verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Verse 13, this is beautiful. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This truly is a nice, packed summary statement of the entire book. In a mere few statements, sentences, Paul tells the church exactly what God the Father has done for them. I don't know if you caught the language, but he said he has qualified them and transferred them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. He, God the Father, has done a work through Christ that has qualified them and given them a new kingdom. The most shocking thing is that this has been accomplished through the forgiveness of sins. God the Father, through God the Son, qualifies them. Not, as we will see so clearly next week, a host of other activities, our traditions, our philosophies. He, God, has qualified them. Well, how does the Son, Christ, accomplish this great feat? Well, we now arrive at the great high note of the entire book. Verses 15 through 20. Let's read this together. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and here's a kicker, and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's read that again. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is certainly the high note of the entire book. And actually a section that has guided the church in this understanding of Christ for centuries. With those above verses, 12 through 14, Paul seamlessly moves into a barrage of dense statements. I mean, when you read that, does your mind not just go, what? My head just starts to spin to even read these realities about my Savior, Christ. One after another, we feel like they mean something significant, but we can't even wrap our head around them because they're so dense and they're so Well, with all these statements about Christ, he kind of expands on the summary of the verses before. In order to do what? Let's not forget correct, bad theology that has led to bad practice. His first move to correct them is to lay again Christ as their foundation. His very first move out the gate, well, he's kind of nice and kind. We love you. We're praying for you. Good his first move to begin to dismantle wrong thinking is to lay again Christ as their foundation. Brothers and sisters, this is significant for our understanding of this whole entire book, that Christ is preeminent. Scholars are a bit divided on actually where these verses originated. And you may be like, I don't really care because they're cool. But there's mainly two thoughts here. They're original to Paul, he penned them himself, or he's reciting a known hymn, a hymn, something that the church would recite together and pray together and sing together. But I think there's evidence within the letter to help us kind of really understand this section. Uh, I believe I have Colossians 3.16 up there, hopefully. Yes! 3.16. Everyone over here who now has to really turn this way, um, sorry about that. Eric, you kind of had it wrong. They needed to move this way instead of the Anyway, nonetheless, if you have a Bible or a phone, no Pokemon scripture. Okay. Um, Colossians 3. I think this gives us a bit of an indicator to what this section is trying to do. Okay? So here in verse uh, chapter 3, Paul is giving them a lot of instructions on what to do. Here's what he tells them to do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Perhaps this is a helpful insight to this particular section. You see, this verse instructs the church to continue to sing hymns to one another as a way to let the words of Christ dwell richly within them, to teach them and admonish them. What a healthy practice with massive results. So here in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, we have, I believe, an ancient hymn sung by the church. Paul uses its familiarity and its rich theological content to admonish them. He uses a familiar, a familiar hymn to write the ship. He uses a hymn to correct wrong thinking. Now, because there's an expectation with Paul's letters to usually develop an argument about what's agreeable. And then what's interesting, the purpose of a hymn that we've learned was to present key summaries of doctrine. And oh, 
how this is full of key summaries of Christ. They had perhaps sung this to one another many, many times. And when Paul hits the first note, maybe their ears tune in to listen a little bit. This is a gentle and kind of a nice way to confront heretical tendencies. You see, the church had lost its distinguishing characteristic, Jesus himself. If indeed this is a hymn, and really by the content of the entire book itself, I think we're free to say that the truths within this beautiful hymn are not foreign to the church. So what are these truths? What are we to learn and grab from this particular section? Well, if I were to give you a summary, a core proposition, a big idea, the main thing, the number one point, however you want to phrase that, I think it's this. Christ is fully God. I think that's exactly what he is developing with all these really dense statements, is that Christ is fully God. And he seems to establish that by establishing Christ's authority over creation, over redemption, over the church, over reconciliation. So that's the forest. It's the big point, which is good. I think we're all probably okay with that. But what about the trees, right? What is it that we gather as we zero in on some of these? Well, let's take just a few moments and try to climb a few of these really big theological trees for a moment. Well, the forest is big, but the trees are even more difficult. Ready? (laughs) That's such a good response. Pokemon. Um, Probably the first... And most obvious observation is the word all. But you see that as you read through that, you're like, Paul, you're just like constantly saying all, all, all. Notice how Christ sufficiently and rightly permeates all of life. He is all, and his work affects all things. He, Christ, in a comprehensive way, is relevant to all of life. See, Paul did not want us to miss the comprehensive work of Christ in the life of believers. The work of Christ in all of creation. All things are held together. All things created by Christ Jesus. All. Well, in the first section between 15 to 17, Christ's authority over creation is very established. Let's look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Some translations may say firstborn over creation. That's an adequate and a helpful way to think about this. For him to be firstborn is to be over. So here in verse 15, Christ is truly God. Because why is that? He's the image of the invisible God. See, the ideal of image is a bit striking, considering there's quite a prohibition of image making throughout the whole entire scripture. Because man has and does have a tendency to worship created things. The plight of most of Old Testament believers was to make images and worship them rather than God. Here, this text is saying we have the greatest image, and there is no need to add 
are to detract from what God has already given us in Christ. Image is such a fitting word, and it contrasts man's tendency of creating unnecessary objects, or perhaps adopting man-made philosophies that steal away affection that's rightly reserved for Christ alone. You see, Christ is fully God. He is truly God in the flesh. I mean, how does something reflect something that's invisible? if the thing that is invisible does not become visible. Did I lose everybody on that one? How does something reflect something else that is invisible if the thing that is invisible does not become visible? You see, God can only reflect God. Not only is Christ, the image, perfect image of God, he is also over creation. It says that he's the firstborn of all creation. He is over. This, once again, indicates that he has to be God because this authority is only given to God. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not like God. He is God. Jesus is not like God, he is God. Christ is truly God, and any deviation from that truth sounds the alarm. This is bedrock for the church. This is so foundational, to lose it, we lose the whole house. We have nothing to stand on for the assurance of our salvation. Our salvation is not possible if Christ is not God. He alone is the image of the invisible God over creation. Verse 16 carries on more of this ideal of authority over creation. For he says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. In case you're missing it, visible, invisible. In case you didn't know what that meant, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Once again, that ability to create was only reserved for God himself. And therefore gives Christ the right to be over creation, namely over you and I. You see, a natural conclusion of this verse is all that he has created is for him. Once you establish Christ as creator, then that means all that he has created is for him. See, Jesus reigns supremely over all earthly and spiritual powers, now and forevermore. Who has rights to you? Who has authority? Who is it that tells us about right worship and practice? Who is it that sets the course for theology? Who is it that we must listen to? Well, brothers and sisters, on these first two points, it's clearly... Christ. To grant him this authority therefore naturally means that he has rights to us and he is over us. Verse 17 continues to unpack this authority and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's preexistent. He sustains all things. See, Christ has existed for all times. 
And that might not sound like a newsflash to some of you, but over the centuries, many men have died to uphold that truth. Because if there was a time that he was not, then therefore our salvation is not true. See, he has been before all things. He has always existed. There was never a time that he was not. There is never a time that Christ did not exist. He has and always will be. So much so that if he ceased to exist, all things would cease to exist. Why? Because he holds all things together continually. What a staggering thought. If he ceases to exist, guess what? We all cease to exist because he holds all things together. Many men have fought for that truth. And Paul establishes it, and the church sang it, and the church believed it because he has authority. Secondly, let's unpack this for just a few moments. Christ has authority over redemption over the church. Verses 18 to 20, this seems to be the reoccurring theme here. Uh, these statements are so incredibly dense. I'm trying to just give some big statements and kind of look at those trees for a moment to see how that's true. So he is over redemption over the church. So verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body. If you don't know what the body is, the church. Leadership of a church does well when that's true that they understand the head of the body, the head of the church is Christ. He has authority. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here we hear overtones of resurrection. Resurrection of Christ declares that sin has been dealt with. He is preeminent. Verse 19, another statement to say he's fully God, he's truly God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness of God, pleased to dwell. There is no ambiguity in this statement. Christ is fully God. And lastly, verse 20, as we try to grapple with these statements, verse 20, and, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our great God crucified? How, how can this be? The divine nature of Christ, his godness so beautifully established just verses before and here, his blood was shed. Jesus, the God-man, on the cross made a substitutionary atonement on our behalf to satisfy the wrath of God and the justice of God, to reconcile us. That's a relational term. He exchanged hostility for a friendly relationship. So comprehensive. The work of God through Christ, it affects all things and all relationships, which we will see so very clearly in the upcoming weeks. Paul comes back to that reality and said it affects all of life. We must see it now, too. As I watched the news coverage the last few days, 
my heart hurts and longs for peace. It longs for all to be made right. Romans 8, 22 picks up on this. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. In this hope, which is Christ, the God-man's shed blood upon the cross, mates peace. Brothers and sisters, our greatest offense against racism Misuse of power, hatred, retaliation, bigotry, senseless killings, and the lack of concern for those things is God the Son's shed blood. The only thing that can right such atrocities is the God-man's shed blood. You know, the only other place where Paul uses this particular word here in Colossians for reconciliation, it's a bit unique, it's a little bit different. The only other place he uses it is in Ephesians. In a section, he's talking about unity amongst Jews and Gentiles, and guess what? He gives Jesus as the answer. Here's what he says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing hostility. Oh, if you don't think Paul thinks that this ideal of reconciliation he's talking about here in Colossians does not apply to our human relationships, you're fooling yourself. Because in Ephesians, he takes the same mindset and says it should radically influence the way we interact with each other. So comprehensive is the reconciliation of God in our lives. Colossians 3.11, we'll look at in two weeks. Paul instructs the church based upon all that we've said today with these words. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A natural conclusion for Paul in this letter, based upon the reconciliation of Christ through his shed blood, is that there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. Well, we must move on. What about, how does Paul conclude this? Well, verse 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And you, those two words, as I have studied this book, they ring in my ears. This beautiful, just amazing picture of Christ, and all of a sudden he goes, and you. Extremely personal. 
the finger gets pointed out towards the church, reminding them they once were estranged, alienated, hostile towards God. The God-man Christ just described in this most beautiful hymn applies to them and has already altered their life. He has comprehensively dealt with their sin and reconciled them, rescued them in order to have a people that know and love him. To have a people that so comprehensively live out lives of holiness. Lives increasingly more in love with him and less in love with sin. People who take God's moral law as their rule and God's incarnate son as their God which is exactly what we will see in the next three weeks. Perhaps this is a good time to look at you and say these same words. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now verse 23 sounds a bit strange, if indeed you continue in the faith. How difficult these words might sound, but one can kind of really easily see what Paul is getting at here. See, he's saying that if this God-man has sufficiently dealt with sin and presented us as holy, set apart, no longer slaves to sin, then longevity will show a heart set on him by not shifting from the gospel. You see, the church was shifting and Paul is calling them back. Those who know the gospel will come back. Those who don't will reject Paul's statement as unnecessary. Oh, don't reject, but rather hear his call. Heed his warning. Let Christ be your firm foundation on which you stand. Well, what now? What do you do with such a massive, dense text? I don't know. (laughs) But here's an attempt. Because Christ is fully God, we should have Christocentric theology. Our, Our theology should be permeated with the person of Christ. Thoughts about God or thoughts about Christ never separate the two. Let me put forth a challenge here. Why don't we memorize verses 15 through 20? All right, that's the challenge of the next couple of weeks I'm going to lay before you. Let's all collectively together memorize verses 15 through 20 as a way to keep the truths about Christ in the forefronts of our mind. Over the last several weeks and months, it seems like a reoccurring theme we've talked about is rehearsing the truths of God, making it a regular habit to say to ourselves the truths about God rather than listen to ourselves. So in an effort... Let's memorize that. Won't you join me in that endeavor? I'm trying as well. Each week, we'll have someone who will read this text every week before we get started, just as a way to keep these truths about Christ before us. The second thing, which is a bit out of order on the the slide, but he may correct it. Faithful obedience. Since Christ is fully God, that necessitates faithful obedience. We are called to a complete surrender to Christ in all of life. Because why? He's sovereign. Why? He's our creator. Why? He has authority. But most importantly, it's because he's fully God. Thirdly, worship and awe. Sound theology 
most naturally leads to worship, or at least it should. Worship without theology is superficial, has no longevity. Theology without worship is stale and full of arrogance. We should not simply desire to be right, but rather worship in fullness. Lastly, I spend a little bit more time on this, is since Christ is fully God, he is sovereign. Christ is sovereign over all things, namely our salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, he has the right to act providentially. How did he act providentially? Well, in his sovereign wisdom, he came, he took on flesh, he died in our place to make peace by his shed blood. Forgiveness is in Christ alone, who, as we have learned, is worthy and a sufficient sacrifice for your sins, because why? He is God. There is no other means by which you can right your wrongs. This Christ, who is fully God, shed his blood for you. If you have been working as to gain acceptance, well, you're not sovereign over your salvation. If you have good theology and a head full of knowledge, well, guess what? You are not sovereign over your salvation. Sovereignly, he has told us. He came, he took on flesh, he died in our place to make peace. It is through a joyful submission to Christ that salvation comes. You see, Paul, before he can go any further in dealing with the church at Colossae, he dismantles with a really high view of Christ bad thinking. And in turn, he frees them. And in turn, he frees us to worship Christ alone as our Savior. Glad submission is the Christian's greatest strength. Glad submission is the Christian's greatest strength. Glad submission is the rebel's greatest freedom. Glad submission is the rebel's greatest freedom. You, we, must submit to Christ and in turn experience strength and freedom. Christ is even supreme in creating unity. As I watched the Attorney General's address about the shootings in Dallas and all that was going on, she kind of fought for a way to unify the country. Ultimately landed on that we are all called Americans. The greatest thing that she can use as a binding agent for men and women to put aside their hate is nationality. Oh, how that pales in comparison to the sovereignty of Christ in the heart of a person. You see, when Christ reigns supreme in a man's heart, well, love of God and love of others will be the result. Image of God in all peoples will be upheld when Christ reigns supreme in a man's heart. When Christ reigns supreme in a man's heart, the desire to be right is overshadowed by compassion. Much like Jesus in Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
You see, his compassion did not take away his proclamation of the gospel. It compelled it. The gospel, this, Christ, is the hope of the world. And church, we have that gospel. Might we proclaim it in love? The most compassionate thing we can do is to highly exalt this Christ, this God-man declared in Colossians. Let's pray. Father, I have felt extremely inadequate to do justice to the person of Christ for you in flesh form. This is well beyond my abilities and skills to be able to fully grasp and hold on to. But nonetheless, they are true. So may this high and thorough and thoughtful view of Christ guide our behavior, guide our response to tragedy. And may it be the means by which we see hearts turn to you. Hate will only be put aside when a heart's man, when a man's heart is radically changed. Thank you for this text, and I ask that you'd walk with us this week. Remind us of your goodness. Thank you for our salvation uh, so thoroughly and sufficiently brought about through Christ. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.